Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah, and this is Cog Dog Radio. This is our final installment about Prime the Border Collie, and we're going to interview Prime's owner, Heidi. So if you haven't heard the last three episodes about Prime, I really encourage you to stop this, go back, and listen to those, because his case is a complex one, and you're likely to misunderstand a lot of what we talk about here if you haven't heard the other episodes. So back way up, start with Prime Part 1, go to Prime Part 2, then 3, and this is actually Prime Part 4. So before we get Heidi on the phone, though, I had an email question that I wanted to address here because I thought it was an interesting topic that I think just warrants kind of some more information than just me shooting her, you know, my my thoughts in an email. So... The question was about barking during work. Um, her dog gets excited during certain obedience exercises and barks during those exercises. So rather than, you know, jump at her or bite at her, she's kind of seeing this, what, what she sees is kind of an overabundance of enthusiasm coming out as barking only for a couple of exercises. So specifically kind of jumping and retrieve exercises. So in agility, you might notice that a lot of dogs bark during agility. And that's generally pretty accepted. You don't get points off for it, and it's very common. So people just kind of roll with it. If it really bothers people, they probably work hard to diminish it. Um, But opinions certainly vary, but your score is never going to be affected by barking. And obedience is different in that you are going to get scored for the barking. You're going to lose points. And depending on how much your judge hates barking, you could actually fail um, based on the number of barks. I've known, you know, some judges to hit you a point per bark. Um, And if so, if your dog barks, you know, 10 times, you're down 10 points, which is pretty major. Um, I know that when I do obedience, I'm pretty obsessive and like my dogs to turn in really nice high scores. So barking would frustrate me as well. So I definitely hear you. I've never had a barking obedience dog. Um, but since I just said that out loud, it'll probably happen to me at some point. Um, here are my thoughts on it. Barking is an expression of an emotion, right? And so if your dog is barking out of frustration, that's one thing. And I think that's really common in agility when the dog is quiet until there's an error and then they bark. I think that's frustration. What this woman was talking about in her email isn't that though, because the dog is performing the exercise as requested uh the dog's just also barking during that exercise and so i don't think the dog is frustrated i think the dog is excited that's my guess we can't ask the dog so we don't know for sure but my guess is that the dog is actually just excited about the jumping and the retrieving part of obedience and the first thing i want to say is how cool is that that your dog loves obedience (laughs) how cool is it that your dog loves retrieving the jumping portion of obedience um i know that's not a super helpful thing for me to say but i really i like it when dogs like obedience so um understand that your dog is expressing his excitement in that moment or his joy or his you know just utter enthusiasm for the exercise by barking. So what does that mean? Um, Other than how nice he likes obedience. What it means is that, and this was mentioned in the email, the dog is unlikely to understand 
a correction or a with, withholding of reward. So um, if you don't reward for that repetition because there was barking, the dog is then likely to amp up and get frustrated because they don't understand what was wrong about that exercise um, because barking has not been isolated as a problem in the exercise for them because they did the rest of it right and they were allowed to complete the chain, right? So I saw this all over the place when I was super active in obedience, Uh, people correcting for barking and the dog just kind of shutting down because they didn't understand what was being corrected. And so then guess what? They would stop barking because you did affect their emotional state and therefore the barking wasn't coming out anymore because the dog was no longer joyous about the task. So that can happen. And I know my listeners are not interested in that route. So the other thing um, is that if it's an expression of emotion, it's kind of like a smile or a laugh or even a frown. Those are physical expressions of emotions and we don't have a lot of control over them, right? So you can make yourself smile, um, but you also aren't gonna be able to stop or stifle your smile if you weren't consciously thinking about that in the first place, right? So if I'm watching a movie or something that I like, um, I'm gonna smile, I'm gonna laugh, I'm not gonna think about those things. I have no idea how many times I smiled or laughed. I can't tell, I can tell you, you know, what times I was likely to smile or laugh, but I'm not sure because these were not choices I made. They were reflections of my emotion that just came out in a physical way. And barking is like that in this scenario. It's like that in most scenarios. Um, Most of the time, I think dogs are pretty unaware of the fact that they're barking. I feel like they're not barking on purpose a lot of the time. They're just expressing an emotion like we would when we laugh or smile. Um, or even cry, you know, I, you've definitely heard dogs that were barking in distress and that's the same thing. I think they're not saying, you know, I'm going to now bark in order to get somewhere. I'm just expressing the fact that I'm distraught or the fact that I'm excited, which is why a lot of the really traditional, um, a lot of the, I won't say traditional, a lot of the typical, um, routes people go for controlling barking don't work. So if you've ever been told to ignore a dog that was barking in a crate and then let them out when they're quiet and realized just how much that so does not work, um, you you know what I'm talking about here. Um, positive reinforcement-based trainers, I think, are kind of the worst culprits here. They say we're not going to use a correction, so we're just going to ignore that. And you're not only doing a disservice to the dogs if you go that route, and I'm not only talking about barking here, you are doing a disservice to clients and you're doing a disservice to positive reinforcement as a whole, as a movement, as a group of dog trainers, right? Because isn't that the biggest criticism that we always receive from um, the more traditional or quote, you know, balanced type trainers who are gonna use corrections? They say, you know, you can't just ignore these behaviors because they're not gonna go away. And here's the deal, you guys, they're not wrong. Um, and barking falls into this category big time. And it makes me think of that, you know, more so than a lot of other things. The reason being, we got to get at the emotion behind the barking. So here's the bad news. (laughs) Dog's barking because he's excited about the activity. In order to get rid of that barking, you do want to retrain that activity in a lower emotional state. 
So that's one route you could go. You could retrain the, let's say, just the retrieve on flat in a lower emotional state. And I would use uh, cookie searches to bring the dog's emotional state down. Um, I would do a lot of things. I would kind of examine what I could do to bring my dog's emotional state down, and then I would do that for retraining that exercise. The other thing that you could do, you guys, is, you know, part of, go ahead and just look up, you know, look up in some learning theory. I'm wondering if I can get some specific websites posted for you on the concept of fluency and on the concept of, you know, teaching a behavior to look exactly as you would like it to look. At some point here, the dog learned barking is is an okay part of this picture. Um, the dog expressed the barking due to an emotion, an emotion that you probably encouraged, and I, I don't think that was a mistake. Um, but you allowed barking to be a normal part of that picture. So I would almost break this down to where I would send the dog for the dumbbell and click the dog before the dog barked. And now if the dog truly understands the clicker, they will turn off the dumbbell and come back for their food. Um, and I would actually click drop a pile of food at my feet. Okay, because then the dog is gonna need to search for those cookies and it's just gonna lower his emotional state again. And then I would send the dog again and I would basically click at different intervals closer and closer and closer to that dumbbell. And yes, at some point the dog's gonna grab the dumbbell and will not have barked and you're gonna click then. And if the dog again truly understands the clicker, the dog will spit the dumbbell out and come back and get the food. Um, and now if anybody who's been doing obedience a really long time is listening, they probably just um, had a visceral response to me wanting the dog to spit the dumbbell out. You can trust me here. Um, it is okay. <laughs> it is okay if the dog really understands what's going on here and really understands that clicker. So I would be retraining this in the lower emotional state and catching the dog before the dog barks to reinforce. Or I'm going to be very honest with you here. If this were my dog, I might just take the points. And I know that's not an answer anybody wants to hear, but I like enthusiasm. I don't mind barking. I kind of think everybody in obedience needs to lighten up a little bit um, and tolerate barking a little bit better because if the dog's turning in a gorgeous performance, I don't understand why they can't just bark. And I realize I don't make the rules and the rules do state that you're going to be hit um, for that barking. But I almost <laughs> would, would just allow my dog to continue barking through those exercises as a statement, <laughs> as a yes and I don't care that my dog is barking because look at the lovely performance I just turned in. And yeah, you're gonna get hit with the points. So if the points bother you more, you got a big training project on your hand because you've got to change that emotional state and you've got to help the dog understand that quiet is part of the picture here. Not an easy project, but definitely a doable project. So uh, keep me posted, shoot me an email, if you, if any of you are working on this and you decide to back up and kind of help your dog's emotional state be a little bit different for even agility, maybe they bark during agility, um, let me know how it's going and I will talk about it again on a further episode if I get any more emails. And if you guys have other questions that you want to send me, the email address is cogdogradio at gmail.com. All right, so let's go ahead and get Heidi on the phone. Really looking forward to getting her feedback on everything we've talked about so far, and I know you guys are too. Hello. Hey, Heidi, it's Sarah. Hi. 
Are you ready for your big interview? <laughs> I am. All right, great. Um, so Heidi, go ahead and just tell me some of the differences between your life with Prime now and your life with Prime before our work started. Um, so there's so many of them. I basically can just highlight, I guess, the ones that come to my mind the fastest. Um, before I started working with you, Prime's, um, I think the most, um, blatant issue that he had was he had a very hard time eating. Um, he would work for string cheese, but getting him to eat anything else was very difficult. Um, getting him to eat out of a bowl was usually almost impossible. Um, and it didn't matter if it was kibble. It didn't matter what type of kibble. It didn't matter if it was raw meat. Um, it really didn't matter what it was. He didn't really seem to have a hierarchy of what, um, he liked more or less other than string cheese. Um, so that was my, I think, biggest concern for him, uh, was eating because he was, I was having a hard time getting weight on him, um, and he could go uh, four to five days without eating hardly anything besides some string cheese that he would work for. Um, so I think that was the biggest clue that there was something pretty significant happening behaviorally with him. Um, and then other things that he would do um, at home would include hiding a lot, um, he seemed to be either in your lap, holding on to you for dear life, trying to wear your skin, or he was under a bed, um, hiding to the point where if you tried to say anything to him, he would um, growl at you. Sometimes even if he just walked past, he would growl at you. Um, it was almost impossible to get him out. Um, uh, that was another huge thing. He... Um, had a really hard time with water when he was really young. I couldn't even put water in his crate with him because he would often just bite at it over and over again. He grew out of that pretty quickly, but um, he still had a really hard time with large bodies of water like lakes or even kiddie pools, the bathtub, um, pretty much especially things like hoses and things like that. Um, but any amount of moving water or his ability to move the water would become an obsessive behavior to the point where he could probably become intoxicated, have water intoxication, or um, you'd have a hard time getting him away from it. It would become, he would almost accidentally bite you in the process of biting the water. Um, you'd have to physically pull him away from it. Um, a lot of the times, his eyes were really huge, his tongue was huge, he panted. When he shouldn't be panting, he wasn't um, participating in any exercise or anything like that. Um, relaxing was very difficult for him. As you mentioned, transitions were incredibly hard for him, getting him into the car, getting him from room to room, um, getting him to go outside to go potty. They were all um, huge areas of conflict for him. Um, and then in lesser ways, things like, um, he would snap at your hand if you pointed, um, he couldn't handle our two old dogs going out the door because they were, 
um, their dog behavior was inappropriate in his eyes, um, rushing out the door, pacing, things right. like that, whining right. when they would go out. It was very difficult for him to understand their behavior, um, and he needed to control it, so he would nip at them. Um, and he would even randomly... I shouldn't say randomly. I believe there was always a trigger that would cause him to um, kind of run over to me, grab me with his front legs, wrap his front legs around my legs, and um, kind of like hold you like a koala bear, I guess, or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And growl at me. Um, and I often could tell something had happened, a noise that had upset him, or um, something happened like somebody jumped on him and he got hurt or his feelings were hurt or whatever amount of conflict, um, anything that caused him conflict, he would use me as kind of a um, way to get out his his feelings of aggression. Um, And sometimes they were unknown triggers. I didn't know what triggered him to act that way. I couldn't identify a sound or an act that caused him conflict. Um, and then things that involved agility, um, arousal, any amount of feelings are really hard for him. Um, feelings of happiness, like extreme joy, or even, you know, being upset about something, they're really hard for him to handle. Um, the teeter, you mentioned he attacked, he even broke out his teeth, um, attacking it. If you tried to pull him away from it, it was semi-dangerous. Um, he could bite you. Uh, luckily, I was never hurt doing that, but uh, it was definitely something that was scary for anybody involved. Um, so those are all things that were pretty big issues for him. Now, it's some time, and um, I'm not sure if you mentioned all of it, but he's on a good deal of medication. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I don't think I mentioned too. all of them. I think I just said that it's a cocktail, which it is. Right. Yes, uh, fortunately, you, along with um, another uh, friend or trainer I was working with um, separately, said that um, a specialist, a board-certified veterinary specialist, was probably something I should consider, um, because when we, when um, my veterinarian put him on Prozac alone, um, we made some pretty substantial um, changes but it was still not enough to feel like um, he, was, he could be happy um, or his, qual- his quality of life was not good enough, in my opinion. Um, it was still very difficult to live with him. So we involved a board-certified veterinary behaviorist who worked alongside my veterinarian. Um, they consulted me via video, phone. Um, they spoke extensively with my veterinarian. And then... Um, they, prescri- uh, they recommended medications for my veterinarian to prescribe for Prime, um, and that included metrizapine, which helped him eat, um, as well as the Prozac that he's on, and um, gabapentin, which also um, can help with, or, or they're using it for um, cases of generalized anxiety, um, and so on. So all of those things he's been on for quite some time, over a year, and is doing incredibly well. I can't even believe how different of a dog he is. Um, he can um, sit in the living room 
uh, on a deck, a dog bed, and I'm not talking as a trained behavior. He, he right. just relaxes on a dog bed. Um, he can sit on the couch. He can be found just relaxing on my bed, and those might seem like typical things dogs do, but for Prime, that wasn't a typical behavior. He was either hiding, he was working, or he was almost aggressively loving you. <laughs> <laughs> right, the really insecure, bear-hugging, kind of weird yeah. Uh, thing. Yeah. Sometimes painful. <laughs> um, so it was. it's huge to just see him most of the day relaxing. He's actually relaxed. His uh, body signals are just completely different from what they used to be. He does occasionally hide if um, things upset him or, you know, if I haven't been able to do things uh, like take him for a hike or, you know, do the things that I need to mentally put him in a good place. Mm -hmm. um, he can regress back to, you know, hiding and, and those kinds of uh, old behaviors that he used to uh, have. Um, but the other thing that's made a huge difference is you telling me to offer him appropriate places to take time to himself. So most of the time, instead of hiding, if he's kind of done, which I think is a normal thing, right? All yeah. of us need time away. Completely. We don't always want to be in the middle of everything. Um, but when he needs that, he can go in his X-Pen that we have available in the front room or his crate in the bedroom um, and he doesn't have to hide, and there's no conflict associated with coming out. Um, the times that he does hide, he's even still um, almost always, I won't say always, he has bad days, just like I do. Right. <laughs> um, but he almost always can come out when asked. Um, and, of course, I provide him with huge rewards for doing so. Um, and he doesn't have the problem that he used to with water. Yes, it will always be a trigger for him, um, but it's very manageable. He's able to call off of water. Um, he's not as obsessive as he used to be about biting it. He can swim in the lake and only do small bites, you know, swim a little bit, get a toy. Um, he can hang out in a baby pool. Um, so a lot of things, um, a lot of things regarding the water uh, are very different for him. I do have to continue to manage that. Um, by either redirecting him or just um, knowing that we can only spend so much time. I don't take him when we go. Um, I generally don't take him when we go paddle boarding and things like that because it's generally too long of a time for him to handle right. that. Um, so I have to pay attention to his threshold and know what is an appropriate amount of time for him to be engaged with water. Um, he almost never misses a meal. Um, to the point where he's almost on the, his normal weight is almost getting <laughs> a little bit chunky. <laughs> um, so that's, that's awesome. He does have to eat on an elevated area like, um, my table or in a chair. Um, it makes him feel safe. And that was something you and I were able to discover together. Yeah. Um, so he can handle tr um, transitions so much better now. Um, you and I worked really long and hard to figure out what he needed from me regarding transitions. And what we finally, you know, stumbled across was he really didn't want to have a conversation about it. He just needed me to put, come up to him, 
nicely put a leash on him and walk away. Um, and that works for him very well. Um, he loved the pattern of just having a leash on, not having to really think about what was required of him other than following me on the leash. Um, so that really solved a huge amount of conflict for him. Um, not being asked to do things that he really wasn't prepared to do. Even though they weren't difficult things, they weren't bad things. Um, it, it just was a point of conflict for him in his mind. I allowed there to be too much. Um, what's the right word for that? He, he didn't really understand. It was too much of a gray, uh, too much of a gray area. And, and right. basically, and I had talked about this in a previous episode. It's, the difference now is that when you can't accept no for an answer, I, that's Felix weighing in. Um, when you can't accept no for an answer, you don't ask the question. So if you're going to ask right. the dog to do something and their answer is no, you don't then get to make them do it. So when you absolutely must have the dog go from A to B and you know there's a chance they might say no, you just put the leash on and you just go. And so there's no asking. Right. It's just, we're just, right. we're doing this now. And it made it, exactly. it introduced clarity to this that he didn't have before. And I've said it all the time that just lack of clarity is the most aversive thing for right. any dog. For him, A absolutely. for yes. sure, yes. Um, and I think because as a puppy for like the first year of his life, I took him outdoors on a leash um, and he spent a lot of time, um, you know, either in an X-Pen or, you know, I don't want to say he was confined all the time, but he was, I, I didn't want him potting on the floor or chewing things up. Right, normal house so he was being managed. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, because of his, I don't know, I, I'll call it autism because that's the best way I can describe it, even though that's not a word we, that you use in, in dog behavior. Um, but his obsession with patterns, I think, made it very difficult for him to transition out of that um, kind of protocol for yeah. how we move from one really, to another. Really interesting, just little side note that we see, that I think I see this all the time in um, specifically Border Collies, specifically Border Collies that are purchased for sport, and then people... Um, really put them into very restrictive uh, lifestyle scenarios when they're young. So they, you know, the dogs are crated or leashed unless they're working is kind of what a lot of these people do. And what happens is these types of dogs get kind of addicted to that um, just really, really regimented lifestyle. And they have a really hard time transitioning into just being a dog after that. Right. Right. And you weren't necessarily Absolutely. doing that. You were just kind of doing normal puppy management, and he had a hard time yeah. transitioning into real yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't let him run around the house as a young, a very young dog, um, unsupervised. Um, the areas of my house were baby-gated off to him. Um, when you have a lot of dogs, I mean, I have five dogs. When you have a lot of dogs, I think it's kind of necessary for that, but I think for some dogs to adapt um, – to a less regimented, you know, style, like you said, mm -hmm. um, for him was incredibly difficult. Um, and so when we went back to just putting him on a leash to go outside, um, he loved it. I mean, it, it, it took the conflict completely out of it for him. Um, and he's to the point now, which this isn't even something I work on. That, that worked for me. Putting him on a leash worked for me, and I was willing to just have that be the way we mm -hmm. um, transitioned. 
in getting into the car or coming inside from being outside or, or whatever it was. That was something I was comfortable doing. But the craziest thing about it is as I just adapted to what he needed, the conflict seemed to go away. And I think, I don't know how far we are into this. I'll, I'll guess maybe a year now that I've been doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, there are times where I start to get the leash and he goes, no, I, I know, I know what to do. I can do it. And I'll walk to the door and we don't have a conversation. I don't ask him anything. Um, or sometimes I even can, I can ask Doug and bright, my other two dogs, if they need to go potty and he'll volunteer to just come with them and go outside, which was so difficult for him. If I managed to get him into the garage, which is where I let the dogs out the back door to go potty. Um, if he managed to get that far, we would have to have a whole ordeal about he'd hide under the car then. And I couldn't get him either indoors or outdoors. Or So right. just these are significant changes for him. Just the relaxed posture um, he has when engaging in these behaviors is just amazing to me. Um, I'm trying to think of any of the other things that I... Um, Oh, and regarding this heater, I mean, you and I were able to work through that. Um, it took a really long time, and it took a lot of patience, but he can perform <laughs> yeah, a heater now without biting it. Um, we had to change the way we approached it. Um, the criteria became very different, uh, which I know was very hard for other people locally to understand, uh, <laughs> because his criteria was basically you get on the teeter, you get off the teeter. Um and it works really well for him. Uh, most of the triggers, you and I were able to counter-condition him through. Um, so a lot of them no longer bother him. You know, I can point. I can uh, turn on water faucets in the house. It used to be very upsetting for him. Um, he doesn't participate in a lot of the obsessive behaviors he used to, largely due to management, but also due to the counter-conditioning that you and I uh, work together on. Um but there are still days where, you know, if things are going poorly, he can resort back to, you know, those things becoming triggers. Um, and, you know, there are still things that we weren't able to completely counter condition that um, out. Um, but I would say he's still much better about and we continue to progress with. Um, when you have that many triggers, it's, it, I think people think, oh, you just work on them and it's fine. When you have that many things that are upsetting to a dog, it does take a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I won't say that in the last couple of years we've worked together, we've been able to work through everything, but we're definitely working towards, you know, progress. Um, and the best thing is, even when he is triggered about things, he's able to redirect himself even now to shake a toy um, you know, I always try to find, have something available in every room in case he becomes upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, we even, I would just throw a towel and he would put the towel in his mouth and shake the towel. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing maybe that you taught me was adapting to what he needed and being able to kind of think on my feet, um, when it came to him becoming triggered. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that basically covers the biggest things. <laughs> basically. <laughs> just, you know, just a few things. Um, so, <laughs> Heidi, what? This is why Prime had to have four podcasts and not three. Um, yeah. 
what is the most important change that either you had to make as a person or that or that you went through with Prime? Oh, um, well, we made a lot of changes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing that you taught me that I had to change and that I have to continue to work on, I mean, I think every trainer you've taught me being around you as my friend, um, is that, you know, everyone has to work on this to some degree or another, probably me way more than you, of course, but um, realizing that I can be more effective when I treat Prime as an equal partner um, and start respecting his needs and emotions. Um, I had compromise. I had to stop focusing on results. Um, I think in one of your blogs, maybe, I'm, I can't be sure, but at some point I you've written or spoken about um, putting um, process over the, the end result. Yeah. Um, the outcome can't be your sole focus, um, especially with dogs like Prime. It uh, just doesn't work like that. I had to consider what he was feeling and then – think about how I could either help him better understand the situation, better understand what I was asking, or better cope with what whatever was ha- happening in the environment. Um, I had to accept that, and I think you had to tell me this a lot of times, Prime didn't have to be the thing that changed. Of course, we wanted the behavior or um, the thought process that he had or the feelings that whatever he was exposed to um to change, but it didn't mean he had to change. It meant I could change the environment. I could change my attitude. I could change my reaction. Um, Management is such a huge thing that I think I didn't even consider before. And I don't mean manual management either. I don't mean um, physically controlling him. Um, I just mean understanding uh, the idea of threshold understanding um, where he was comfortable and how I could sometimes just remove him from situations. Yeah. I think that's something a Give lot himself. of us as trainers forget is dogs don't have to learn right then and there. And sometimes right. the best way for them to learn is not to be present. Yeah. And giving yourself permission to just say, we're not doing this now. Right. So yeah. I think so often we, just have it drilled into our head that if a behavior is happening that we don't want to see, we have to address it right that second as it's happening. And so often it's smarter to just remove the dog from the context and think about it later. And I think the word you were kind of searching for is you manipulate the environment instead of manipulate the dog, right? So instead of put him on a leash, put him on a gentle leader, put him in a crate, it's what about this environment could change so that he can be free in this environment, right? Right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had to um, consider those things. And I think, uh, I I don't know, I think also the biggest part, um, maybe not the biggest, but one of the greatest things that you taught me was um, understanding when I don't know the answer, when I don't know how to do something, it's okay just to say we can't right now yeah um 
And, you know, I, I didn't understand before, you know, I, I did this and I've seen other people do this. Let's just say we were in whatever environment, at an agility trial or whatever, and the dog's becoming, you know, their arousal state is getting to be too high. Um, it happens all the time, right? A lot of us have border collies. Yep. Um, and they just really can't handle the intensity. Or they can, and it just for a certain extent of time, right? Right. Um, and I had to be able to say that it isn't his job to be able to consistently deal with this amount of arousal or of this amount of input. Yeah. But that's not necessarily healthy for him, whether or not he can physically do hit or I can ask him for a behavior, right? A lot of people want to give them behaviors to push through that threshold, right? If they can down or if they can maintain a sit or if they can be in a position or sit on a cot or whatever um, or be giving high fives or whatever, it doesn't mean that they're not over threshold. Um, And I had to recognize that. I had to recognize that just because he was functioning doesn't mean it was good for him. Because something with Prime that I think people that you had to learn to recognize and that a lot of people I work with have a hard time recognizing is that he would appear, quote unquote, fine all day. Right. And then you would go home and have major problems. So it's kind exactly. of the, it's expecting him to be in an environment that's hard for him all day. And he does great, but you're going to pay for it later. And people don't right. understand that that's how stress hormones work. That's how emotions work. There's a buildup in the body and it's got to express itself somehow. So, you know, it's the same with if you have a nightmare of a day, but you handle it. And you don't cuss anyone out. And you don't, you know, you don't become a violent person in the grocery store. And you totally handle it. That doesn't mean you're going to come home and be nice to your partner. <laughs> right? And Or that you just need time alone. And, and exactly. And so the smart, right. And so the smarter choice is to go home and take some time to yourself to recover from that day. And we have a hard enough time right. doing that for ourselves, let alone right. doing it for the dog, right? Right, yeah. So you may have just answered this, but my next question for you is what was the hardest change that you had to make as a person? Um, I think the hardest thing for me to accept maybe would be the better, if that's okay if I answer yeah, that. that. Yeah, that works. <laughs> um. I think the hardest thing to accept was that I think the perception that is involved with having a dog like Prime, um, he isn't one of those dogs that you kind of just, I don't know, get away with being out of the spotlight, if that makes sense. Um, He he has significant issues that um, are difficult to work through. Um, Most of the time, people don't the side of him that um, is, I guess, the hardest to handle. They just see maybe the side effects, right? Like the, yeah. the trained behaviors. Um, you know, he, like you were saying, an agility would run around the obstacles and things like that. Um, people didn't see the smaller, more important signs that he was struggling. Um, and so when I attempt to, in public, help him through things, it's really hard for people to understand that because they perceive what's going on through the lens of their own experience. 
And I will say that after working with you and after working with uh, the board-certified veterinary specialist, yes. um, it became very clear to me that not many dogs are like Prince. Yes. Um, they generally exhibit, you know, maybe some behaviors that are similar, right? Um, a lot of Border Collies have obsessive behaviors. A lot of Border Collies have arousal issues. You know, there are, there are other dogs that attack teeters. I think to some degree, a lot of dogs have pieces of um, uh, of the same issues that he does. Um, but I don't think that um, maybe they either exist to the level or to the magnitude that um, he struggles with. Um, and so I think it's really hard for people to either respect or they try to respect but can't understand um, what he faces. Um, and so when people talk to you, either to be supportive or sometimes not, but generally to be supportive, um, it's in a, in a, through a lens or within a context that doesn't apply for him. Yeah. Um, and so it was really hard for me to just accept that it's okay that other people aren't going to understand. Um, but I had to do what was best for him anyway. Um, and sometimes that meant upsetting people. Sometimes yeah. it meant saying, you know, no, he can't, you know, you can't sit with him and get him, you know, speak with him in this high-pitched voice and get him wound up at an agility trial for a long period of time, right? People right. wanted to say hi to him. They liked him. He's a very great dog. He's a fun dog. Um, very loving dog. Um, but sometimes it means having to make decisions for him that seem rude to other people, um, but in no way are meant to be that way. It's just me trying to do what's best for him. Um, and that was hard. That's hard for me. It's still hard for me. It's always hard for me. And I think that's hard um, for a lot of the people that I work with. I know that you and Emily Jade's owner have talked about this extensively because it's something you that's hard for both of you is right. just dealing with the perceptions and a lot of the times the advice that gets thrown at you no, sure. from people that you're around because you choose to go to right. agility trials. And if you're going to be at trials, there's going to be there people they're talking to you <laughs> and they're going to, right. you know, and especially if you are doing something that seems kind of weird or your dog is doing something that seems kind of weird to them, they're, they're going to come and give you their their input right and that's something that has been tough for both of you guys to just sometimes let it roll off your back sometimes have to put up your hand and say no you know don't talk to my dog right, right now or back up or give us space and it is hard it's a learning curve and it continues to be hard and it probably that's kind of that's a big one that I think applies to life but really really applies to this kind of dog training that I do is that understand that there are some things that are always going to be hard and that you have to keep doing them anyway. Yeah. And they're going to be worth it, but they're, they're always going to be hard. And that's probably one of them. Um, Absolutely. So Heidi, if you could tell everybody, if you could like inject a piece of information that you have learned from this whole experience into everybody in the dog world's brain, <laughs> what would it be? Um, I think I talked to a lot of people about Prime, and one thing 
um, I've learned because I, I have Prime. I feel like we've had so much success together, maybe not um, in a way most people would expect. You know, I, I made the decision to, to um, for now at least, not do agility with him, maybe ever, um, because it was just the right decision for him. Yeah. Um, but I think the hardest, I don't know, the the best thing I took away from the whole learning learning experience after now having another puppy after him, right? Um, another border collie who's, I mean, she's high drive. Um, and like any border collie, I think she, she has to deal with issues of arousal and, and, and you know, um, pressure and things like that, that I think border collies struggle with maybe more than let's say my golden retriever. Um, but even to apply to him, is that you don't have to wait for a dog to have a problem to use the philosophy of training that you use. Um, we can respect all dogs. We can start um, try, working with dogs in a way that's void of coercion and dominance. Um, and it can be so crazy magical. Um, the relationship I'm able to have with Bright because of what I learned from Prime. And I wouldn't say she has quote unquote behavioral problems, right? Right. Um, I mean, you've met her. All dogs have things to work on. Right. But, um, she's very, very stable, very normal dog. Right. Yes. Um, I think she's very level headed for a border collie. Um, but I still made the decision to treat her, Pretty much the same as I would Prime. Yep. I'm not going to say I'm always great about it because Prime kind of demands it from you. <laughs> yes. There isn't um, a plan B with, with Prime. Um, and, you know, with especially with Doug and, and often with Bright, they let me get lax and, and I sometimes am, you know, whatever, not as respectful about their needs or their feelings or, you know, use some amount of coercion. We all do it sometime or another, right? Right. Um, but... Just to get people to understand that they could turn to this way of training without having a dog that requires it um, is such a better way of doing things. It's so much easier for me. I don't feel like it's about winning. I, I don't feel like it's about me trying to make something specific happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's such a better way of just you having this, um, I don't know what the right word for it is, you having this expectation of show up and try. And in return, you start to offer that to yourself, right? I don't always have to be the perfect trainer. I don't always have to know all the answers. And sometimes I make mistakes. But that's not the point. The point is I showed up and I tried and that's my expectation for them as well. And it's such an easier place to live. Um, it, it's just so much more rewarding than, uh, I don't, what would you call the other way of how I, I was doing things and how many other people um, train? I don't even have well, a Well, I think it I almost goes back to what you, <laughs> what you had mentioned earlier about process versus outcome. And Sure. Saying, you know, the process, you're either going to be a process oriented trainer or you're going to be an outcome oriented trainer. And I, right. I mean, that's the same with competing too. Um, and 
I think I think what you're trying to get at is more that you know giving the dog giving yourself the the privilege of just as long as you show up and you give it what you have that is good that is enough and then and then yeah, give, and then giving that right? and then giving that to the dog as well and saying exactly. I respect wherever you can meet me because I respect that right. you showed up and you tried at all right absolutely and I think one of the things I was able to take away with Bright, and you and I continue to talk about all the time, um, is being present in that moment with them is so great. But it also allows you the space. You know, I when I when I'm starting out with Bright now in agility, I have a lot of people. You know, we talk about criteria and whether they can give that criteria in in um, a show environment, right? A yeah. competition environment. And the beautiful thing that your version of training, or I, I guess it doesn't belong to you exclusively, but let's just say right. <laughs> the version you shared with me um, allowed me to do is, you know, if we're we're competing, and let's just even say we're in the ring, and she isn't able to offer the two-on-two-off, I was able to open up to these all these new options. It's not doesn't have to be as simple as, it's not as binary as, do I need to punish her? Or right. do I need to do this? There's this whole right. other world of how to solve that, right? It doesn't have to be so binary. It can be maybe we aren't ready to show and we'll just take a break from that. I'm not going to put her near a teeter to be unsuccessful um, and put her in a situation where she can be successful with that and then build on it, right? Like we've had these conversations where in the past I don't feel like that was how I discuss things with you. It was, I always thought in a very binary. And I uh, think that when people learn about learning theory, right. And they learn about the quadrants of operant conditioning and they learn about positive reinforcement and they, they then learn about, they then start to look at things in a binary fashion. Behavior is reinforceable or not. Right. And, and maybe if you're going to use, if you're going to apply punishment as well, you would say, you know, behavior is punishable or not. And um, this is something that I help a lot of people shake out of their heads after they learn about learning science is, <laughs> is that behavior isn't necessarily this just input-output machine, right? Absolutely. You can instead always take their behavior as information. Don't take it as a personal failure. Don't take it as a personal success. Take it as information. The dog misses their, you know, yeah, if a young dog gets out and doesn't perform the teeter the way that you expected her to in that environment, you go, okay, that's information for me. And what I do, what I do in this moment matters less than what I do after I go home from here and go and, absolutely, you know, and, and saying there's a lot of factors involved, not just reinforcement and punishment, right? Emotional comfort. Um, emotional state, these are things that should be considered as well. Absolutely. And I, you know, not to continue going on and on and on, but another huge thing you taught me was about the, I don't know, just the huge um, factor of classical conditioning. It's happening all the time. Like, I just didn't realize how many emotions I had built for Prime into behaviors, right? I mean, some of it was just his nature to have a problem with conflict. Anytime he didn't understand, you know, he, he has conflict aggression, so he'll resort back to growling 
or knitting or whatever. Um, but part of it was me as well, right? I contributed to it by allowing negative emotions to be surrounded with behaviors. Um, and when you open your mind to that and you realize, you know, how often we're allowing this to happen, even as puppies, right? We're picking them up without them being ready. You know, we're never really asking them what they want. Um, we don't realize how much we're building motion into these behaviors. Um, yeah. And some of them, I mean, especially if you have a dog like Doug, my golden retriever, they just kind of roll with the punches, right? <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> so it, he barks at the start line because there's some, you know, emotion built into that behavior for him. But he rolls with the punches for the most part. I mean, he's kind of just going to go with it. Um, but the more complicated, and I, I don't want to say smart, that's not the right term, but the more complex of a dog you have, um, like a Border Collie, for instance, that's supposed to analyze so many different environmental um, concerns, right? The sheep, right. The, the, the surroundings, the person, you know, giving them instruction and so on. Um, I think the more complicated the dog gets, the more complex their thought process, the more um, they kind of demand that you think about these things. Or... If they don't demand it, they kind of, you, you figure out a way to make it work. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's not emotion being built into it. Because emotion is always being built into everything. And I think that's what you're Absolutely. saying with the fact that you know, classical conditioning is always happening. We don't have control oh, yeah. over, yeah, we don't have control over making that happen or making it not happen. It's always happening. So making it work for us is that key component. Um I think that you're trying to make. So Heidi, those are the questions that I have for you. Is there anything else you would like to add? I don't think so. I just hope more people kind of tune into you and kind of um, try to open their minds to, you know, other, other possibilities for training. Um, Cause I think, you know, the science continues to grow every day. Um, I, one thing I really hope is that the dog training world, the competitive dog training world, um, starts to turn more towards science, um, and, um, and understanding behavior, dog behavior. Um, I really think it's such a separate atmosphere right now. Um, it's getting better, definitely, but I really hope that it can start um, leaning in the direction that people like you are taking it. Um, so there you go. Me too. It's on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Doing my best. That's what I hope too, Heidi. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me. I will let you go, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, you guys, that concludes our journey with Prime, the Border Collie. I certainly hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Um, Heidi's a very special person to me and has become a close friend over this process. And I really loved hearing her talk about her side of this just now. So I hope you guys enjoyed it just as much. If you have any comments or questions, you can shoot them over to me at cogdogradio at gmail.com. And I hope you tune in in a couple of weeks. Thank you.